I'm Melana Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Taking an idea into a product involves steps like evaluation, prototyping, and commercialization. Maggie Ng, vice president of Sinova, explained the process of developing products. We talked about projects from different industries and the role of intellectual property. Maggie also talked about project trends from around the world. Before we begin, I'd like to thank DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. DigitalOcean offers a simple and developer-friendly cloud platform. It makes managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API and multiple options for your cloud infrastructure. You also get predictable pricing, excellent customer support, and access to all the infrastructure services you need to grow. DigitalOcean also has a great community and they provide thousands of tutorials that are super easy to follow and help you to stay up to date on the latest open source software and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for free with a free $100 credit at do.co slash women in tech that's do dot co slash women in tech thank you maggie Ng, vice president of sunova is joining us today maggie welcome to the show thanks adina today we're gonna be talking about several topics including innovation and intellectual property. But first, I want to begin briefly going over some of your background. You studied science, particularly focusing on chemistry, and you did a PhD later. At some point, you identified a career in academia wasn't for you. What are some of the reasons that got you to that conclusion? So when I started my undergraduate at university, I was in a science program and I was actually in a science education program. So I thought I would become a teacher. But as I went through it, I loved chemistry, but I decided that teaching wasn't for me. So I did my honours year, which is all about research. And that led me to getting a scholarship to do my PhD. And it was during that time um, when I was doing my PhD in chemistry that I decided academia wasn't for me. I think that there's a lot of uncertainty in academia. It's incredibly competitive But I think the uncertainty and the constant need for grant writing and searching for funding didn't really appeal to me. What I did love about ac academia was the teaching aspect of it. I loved teaching. Um, when you're doing a PhD, you need to teach undergraduates some coursework and um, help them in labs. So that aspect I really liked, but I didn't like the grant writing aspect of it. So I decided that academia wasn't for me. So at the end of my PhD, I was like, okay, what are some other careers that I, as a fresh graduate with a PhD in chemistry, can do now? And it kind of led me down to my path at Sonova. So what you're saying is that one disadvantage that you found for your case is that if you go to academia, you have to be actively seeking funding? Yeah, absolutely. So the saying in academia is publish or perish. And the more you publish, the more your work gets promoted and out there is what 
determines funding. You know, you need to be able to constantly write grants. Grants usually last for a maximum of three to five years. And then the whole process starts again. And in this day and age, grants usually last maybe two or three years at most. And it's an extremely difficult time. I think postdocs have a really hard time where there's a lot of uncertainty and actually getting a secured academic teaching position is incredibly difficult. After finishing your PhD and deciding that you didn't want to focus on academia, you moved to consulting. Can you explain what does consulting consist of? So as I finished my PhD, I wanted to look for um, other types of jobs where my skill sets could be utilized. So one of the things that I always say, people always ask me, why did I do a PhD and what did I learn from my PhD? I think the key things that I learned from my PhD was the soft skills that makes a good consultant. So things like tenacity, um, not giving up, uh, being able to question things, looking for solutions, being able to have someone tell you something and actually be able to dive deeper and ask the right questions and to be able to process things and pick things up really quickly. And I think these are the skills that a PhD teaches you. So it's not necessarily what you learn, but the skills that you pick up and the skills that will drive you towards um, a career in any path that you seek. So what the consulting did. So at the end of my PhD, I decided to look elsewhere and a job came up at this boutique consulting firm that basically helped companies look for R&D grants and basically helped them apply for government reimbursements for any research and development they were doing in the field. So it was a risk. I, you know, coming out from a, a PhD, I needed, I took a graduate position. So the people who started at the same time as me were, you know, fresh out of a a bachelor's degree, whereas I had had my PhD, but I decided that, you know, I needed to take a risk and I needed to start at the bottom if I wanted to work in a new industry. So that was a really eye-opening experience. I think the beauty of that year that I spent in consulting was that we were thrown right into the deep end. So it was a very non-specific consulting industry where they would consult across multiple different industries. So we would be talking to people who manufactured pools or, you know, uh, companies in the automotive industry or the mining industry. And what we did was we spoke to their senior R&D leaders, so the R&D managers, and then we needed to understand what type of research and development they were doing and basically produce documents and help them apply for government grants um, because there are a lot of government grants to help companies do R&D because innovation is the key to success and to survival. So I thought it was a little interesting that the thing that I didn't think I wanted to, that I didn't like about academia, the whole grant writing approval, grant writing process is what I ended up doing in consulting. Uh, granted, it wasn't for me personally, it was for these companies, but yeah, it was, it was just an interesting experience, I think. So I worked in consulting for a year and I really enjoyed it. And then a job at Sonova came up and it was then really different company, really interesting company. And I decided I didn't think I had the experience to get the job actually, but I applied and I got it and I've been at Zenova ever since. So it's been six years. So you've been six years at Sonova and you're currently vice president. And here you work on both the development and business side of things. On the development side, 
I saw that you oversee projects that start from problem statements all the way to commercialization. Can you talk about the components of this process as a product gets developed? Yeah, absolutely. So I started off as an analyst at Sonova, working with a lot of our innovator network. And um, basically what one of the processes that Sonova goes through to help our clients is what we call the request for invention process request for invention or request for innovation. And what it what it starts off with is a problem definition session where we sit down with our clients and we talk about what actually their problem is. We talk about things that they've tried in the past. We talk, talk about why they want to solve these problems and if this is the actual problem that they want to solve. And I think this session is what makes basically having innovators in the room in this session helps companies think about their problems in a different way. So once that's done, we draft a document with the request for innovation and we send that document out to our network of, of innovators to help come up with ideas. And during this time, we also hold brainstorming sessions where we get a group of our innovators together and we have some experts in the room, what we call the walking Wikipedias, and we sit down and we innovate and we try and come up with solutions. Once we have a whole range of solutions, we filter them, we filter them for our clients first, and then we present the ones that we think are viable to our clients, and that's when they pick the ones that they're interested in. When that happens, the next stage is what falls to my team, and that's the prototyping and proof of concept stage. So usually we will present our clients with ideas, so they're thought out ideas. Some may have some attached data to them, some may not. And what our clients want to see is, well, okay, I really like this idea. Let's see if it actually works. So it comes to my team and that's where we, where I connect with our development network and basically ask them to come up with a prototype for this idea and come up with a development pathway. So you've talked about several things here. You mentioned development network, innovators. Does the project start by talking to a company and identifying their problems and then sending a message to a portion of the network of innovators at Sonova and then doing the prototype? Is that what the process is? Yeah, so that is basically the process. What I was saying is we're kind of like the LinkedIn of, of innovators, right? A lot of companies, a lot of these big companies have their own R&D networks, R&D departments. But sometimes the solution that you need or the person that you need isn't in the R&D department. There are experts all around the world and trying to connect to them or hire them just can't. So we work a little bit like an outsourced R&D where you have a problem, your team may not be able to come up with a solution or your team is struggling and you need some outside input. That's when companies come to us and say, okay, our team's been working on this for a while. We can't find the right solution. And sometimes we ask, well, are you asking the right questions first? And other times we're like, okay, let's give this to our network of innovators and see what else they can come up with. It's interesting. Sometimes we find, um, say you have a problem in the automotive industry where you want to introduce new AI technology. It's sometimes not the typical people that you go to that comes up with an interesting solution. So that's what we have as our selling point is that we reach a whole bunch of different individuals that come up with some really creative solutions. You've mentioned the automotive industry. What are other domains and industries that you've gotten a chance to work with? So two of our biggest clients are Honda um, being the automotive industry and PepsiCo, which is in the food and beverage 
industry. But we work for many things. We work for industry body groups like Meat and Livestock Australia, Cotton Australia. We work with a whole bunch of clients in the US. One of the beautiful things and the really interesting things about working with Zenover is that one day I can be reading about non-thermal pasteurization technology, which is technology to, to try and pasteurize beverages without the use of heat. And then the next day I can be reading about problems with sheep in Australia and the fact that if they get um, grass seeds in their coats, it's really bad for the sheep and for animal health animal health. So uh, we need solutions to try and, and, and make sure that these grass seeds don't go into these coats. So it's incredibly diverse and I'm learning every day. I read about crazy inventions um, every day and it's really, um, it's, re it's really engaging and I'm always learning and I think that's one of the benefits about working with Sonova. Earlier you mentioned that you work with innovators from the network and they can get to build prototypes what are some of the ways in which a prototype is evaluated? So what we usually do is when we get a solution from our innovators, we'll either ask them, sometimes our innovators ha also have their own little prototyping lab. So sometimes they're able to actually do the prototype. They've got the idea in their head and then we'll help fund some prototyping activities, say if it's making a new type of kids' beverage packaging. So maybe they have some packaging expertise. If they don't, then we'll go to our development partners. So we have development partners all around the world who then we give them this basically an ID that's been generated from one of our innovators. And we say, can you make this, make this into a real product? And in that process, it also takes a bit of creativity and potentially some new IP in that where they come up with the actual prototype to make it. So it's a lot of back and forth. It's a lot of um, going to our clients to say, is this kind of what we're looking for? And then our development partners to implement these changes. So it's a iterative process, but at the end of the day, when we get a prototype that works or is what the client is looking for, we present it to them. And if they're happy with it, sometimes these they take the prototype and it goes back into their R&D teams. Um, and then it goes through their internal R&D process where they now have an idea, they have a prototype, then it goes down the commercialization pathway within the company. Um, and sometimes we license these technologies to other, other individuals. What are some of the factors that help determining if a product will make it to commercialization? There's a whole lot of Despite, uh, not just making the actual prototype or proof of concept, but I think down the R&D pathway, there is a whole heap of work that done, that is done into the manufacturability of these products, um, what cap CapEx is required to input new machinery or, or new equipment that is needed. Uh, there's a whole lot of backwards. It's not just, you know, actually being in a lab or design studio to make it, but it is a whole lot of paper exercise to look at the cost, look at the business side. And I think that's where scientists in general find it. It's a little bit challenging. So it requires both the business side of business skills and accounting skills to look at it from a manufacturability point of view. And then also uh, the designers and the people to come up with the ideas, our innovators, to see whether or not um, it will actually work. So you're saying some of the metrics that can be looked at as a product is being developed is the cost in the business. Are there any other ones that stand out? 
I think the other ones that stand out are obviously the potential impact, the revenue, return on investment, all these standard ones that any new product development process will have to make sure that a product is successful in the market. And it depends on what type of product. If it's say if it's code or if it's some software code that will go into it the process is obviously different but here we're talking about say the release of a new snack or the release of a new beverage packaging Um, packaging is a difficult one because packaging is one that there's really really small margins on it but people are looking for improvements things like not using straws on packaging beverage packaging or um, recyclable materials so there's high cost to these materials but packaging because it's essentially something that you throw away there are incredibly small margins in them. two of the main industries that you mentioned earlier are the automotive and the food and beverage within these industries do you see projects from different areas emerge for example you talked about pasteurization which is more chemical oriented what about software Oh, absolutely. So we have things such as looking at uh, facial recognition for ordering your beverages. So if you have a, say if you have a vending machine and you order something the same day, is there facial recognition payment systems that you can use or um, to personalize the experience where, you know, you order the same thing every day, you get a code from the vending machine every day. Instead of having to input that, if the vending machine sees your face, then then it knows that that's what you want. So there, it works across different industries. Um, and I and I mentioned packaging and more chemical orientated things, just because that's the background I work in. But as I said, I work through um, the solutions I see and the uh, requests for inventions that we have. The problem statements that we put out range from uh, the Internet of Things to you know helping keep cows clean. So it's incredibly wide-ranging. As part of your role, do you get to travel a lot? I do. So I actually started in Australia after I did my PhD and my year in consulting. I joined some of Australia. And the Zenova head office is actually based in Seattle. So we I traveled to the head office frequently for clients. And then this role in Zenova that I have now, the vice president of the Technology Development Center is actually in Singapore. So I'm currently based in Singapore, where we're working to build up our network and our presence across Asia. So I'm getting a sense that this network is very global and you've traveled around. Are there some patterns or trends or needs that you've noticed in terms of the projects that are being developed around the world? There's definitely a trend. There's a lot of work done in AI at the moment, um, trying to personalize user experiences across all different fields. But one of our biggest drivers, I think, in our market is will always be food. Food, agriculture, innovation. Industry requires innovation, and I think industries realize that if they don't innovate, they'll die. The you know the perfect examples: the Ubers and the Airbnbs, which have had a huge impact on the hotel industry and on the taxi industries. They realize if they don't, if we don't innovate, then, you know, we'll go down the route of Kodak where they will cease to exist, uh, you know, in 10 years time. So it's just, there's a lot of information and there's a lot of, there's a lot of drive to innovate. And I see that, especially where I'm based in Singapore, where Singapore is a country that doesn't have a lot of natural resources. So, you know, they're not a mine, they don't have the resources to mine, to, to mine or they don't have um, you know timber to cut down they don't have 
natural resources. It's a small country. So they're investing a lot of money in innovation, in tech innovation to to become competitive and to stay competitive in the world. Is this innovation mostly in the software industry? Yeah, in the software, fintech is a big one, software industry. But as I said, agriculture is still a big one. So even in a small place like Singapore, they're investing in vertical farming, for example, and and basically high growth crops and high value crops. They're looking at sustainable ways for agriculture and things like that. So yeah, there is a lot of tech innovation in terms of software, hardware, fintech, but also the the big one is agriculture. Everyone's going to eat. Yeah, exactly. Some of the things you do currently are source, analyze, develop and commercialize intellectual property for investment. Can you describe what intellectual property means? So intellectual property is things, usually some people think of intellectual property as patents and patents do make up a part part of intellectual property, but things like trade secrets, trademarks, all of this constitutes as intellectual property. So basically what we do is we'll help our clients um, on the IP side. So we will file patents for them to protect their ideas and we'll file for them or we can help them with the filing aspect of it. But IP is important because at the end of the day, we need to make sure that the ideas that we create, they're valuable and it's part of, of our service offering. What does it mean to source intellectual property? So what does it mean to source intellectual property? I think it means basically finding ideas and finding ideas, testing them out. And if they're valuable ideas, if they work, if you find a new type of material, then you obviously want to protect that and you need to protect that. So you have the option to use it. And if people want to use that material that you've created, that you've spent money perfecting that you've spent money testing on then they need to take a license to use your intellectual property and that that's what it means right if you've invested in an idea and it's a great idea and it turns out to be something that other people would like to use then you know people should actually you should pay for it because you've made the initial investment earlier you mentioned that part of what sinova is doing is leveraging this network of innovators, people from academia, research, and also retirees. What is the process for finding a match within somebody from the innovators network and let's say a company that's looking for an innovator? So I think what our difference is from some of the other open innovation networks that are out there is that we are a curated, we're a curated site. One of the important things that we have is that we have our relationships with our innovator network. So Zenova is a network of over 12,000 innovators. And what we have is we build relationships with our networks. We have invention development managers all around the world who work closely with our innovators. So we know them personally. We know them. We email them. We talk to them on the phone. And we actually help them invent because they come up with an idea. And we were like, we work with them to refine the idea, make sure that it's what our clients want. So we know what interests our innovators have, we know how they work, and we know who they like to work with. So one of the things that I mentioned is we have brainstorming sessions where we'll bring a group of innovators together. We know, you know, what their expertise are, but also what their interests are. And I think that's really important. And that's one of the key differences that drives us um, 
um, that differentiates us from, from other open innovation networks. We know our inventors, we know our innovators, and if we find a problem that is really interesting that we think one of our innovators will be uh, good at, we put these problem statements on our network so all our web innovators can see it. But if we know one of our innovators would really like this problem, we'll send them an email as, hey, innovator, this problem will really suit you. How about you take a look at this one? How big is the network currently? 12,000 innovators. So you mentioned some of the ways in which you connect with them are with email and, I guess, phone calls. Are there other ways where you look at for maintaining a good relationship with the innovators? Yeah, so we have blogs that we keep them um, regularly updated on. In the different countries, we have events that we invite our innovators to. So, you know, get-togethers where they can meet other innovators. We've done this in the past. And, you know, even when we have gatherings, we have Christmas parties in different offices around the world, we'll invite our innovators to come and just, you know, mingle with the staff. And I think that's what gets innovators returning to work for innovators, the fact that it is kind of like a you know, a gig economy in that it's, it's you know, some, for majority of them, it's a, it's a job that they do on the side if they have interests, you know, the retirees, but we really build a community around it. And I think that's why they like to work for us and they keep on coming back to work for us. So what you're saying is there has to be a mix of digital interactions as well as in-person interactions, because those are still very valuable to nurture a network of 12,000 people. Absolutely. I think in business, it's all about who you know and your relationships and your connections with them. And I think building those connections keeps people returning to us. I think we, the fact that we have really interesting clients and really interesting problems that span from, you know, agriculture, AI, software, hardware, to, you know, pasteurization, new stack products, that keeps our innovators coming back to us, keeps our, our problem statements fresh but also the fact that we, we just work closely with them and we try and get out there in the community and, and um, you know, help engage them in what we're doing. Well, Maggie, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Dina. Thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor of the show. Go to do.co slash women in tech to get started for free with a free $100 credit and get your application on the cloud. That's do.co slash women in tech. Thank you. Thank you.